Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Elb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be used for investment advice. Our guest today is Jesse Pucci, founder of Gateway X and Ampush. Gateway X is a venture studio and holding company founded by Jesse. Ampush is a growth marketing partner that crafts holistic strategies and executes throughout the funnel. Today's episode, we chat about performance marketing, how to scale marketing channels, and what are some of the common mistakes that brands make. Without further ado, here's Jesse. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So talk to me a little about the beginning when you were early in your career. What made you decide to leave kind of Goldman Sachs and finance and kind of head into performance marketing and become an entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I always tell people like the for the first day you ever think you want to be an entrepreneur, you're probably within 10 years, like give yourself 10 years to actually start a business from that moment. Because a lot of people, there's a there's quite a progression that takes place, I think. And you know, I, I sort of had the lucky cheat code, which was my dad was an entrepreneur pretty much since I was born. He was, you know, an immigrant. He came over from India when he was 17, went to college here. And then he always, he had a travel business and the real estate business. So I was, I was like, just saw that from early on. And I was a kid, I had a snow shoveling company. We cornered the Indian wedding market in the Midwest. We were DJs in high school and actually made, made like pretty good money. Uh, had a t-shirt business in college. So I was, I was always kind of that entrepreneurial kid. And in many ways, you know, I, I think my, I, I worked at Goldman Sachs, you know, I always tell people that was more of a detour than the, than the leaving the entrepreneurial. I was sort of like, man, people say these companies, you know, this company is such amazing. I should go see if I love it. And if I love it and I'm like in the top 5%, I'll, I'll do it forever. And I don't think either of those were true. I think I liked it and I was pretty good at it, but, but I don't think the bar was high. And, and so, you know, in 2010, it was the middle of financial crisis. It was a great time to go take a risk. You know, I, I was like, worst case, I'll try to go to business school in a few years and moved moved on a dime from New York to San Francisco and was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna start a business. And you know, the, the progression was sort of like, well, we want to start something that's bootstrapped. We we wanted to kind of we always called it learn while we earn, you know, or earn while we learn. So we we're like, let's get something where we can make a little bit of money that will let us then learn and have time to learn versus kind of the traditional path of like put a business plan together and raise venture money. And it was, you know, and then someone's like, well, you know, digital marketing is like the spinal cord of the internet. And so we're like, okay, that looks pretty cool. It's pretty numbers oriented and data driven. And then we said, well, we don't know anyone. We have no relationships. So they're like, well, there's one area you don't need relationships. It's called performance marketing. And we're like, oh, how does that work? And and that was really the story, honestly, for how we landed on performance marketing from you know from a, a desk in in Manhattan all the way to to starting a performance marketing company in, in San Francisco. That's amazing. What were some of the learnings? And I'm sure there's you know thousands of learnings, but some of the learnings when you first started um, Ampush and within performance marketing that you kind of had to learn on the fly. There was a bunch of crazy ones, you know. And, and to your first point, I, I think I always tell people there's at least two types of entrepreneurs: either people who have an idea or something that they just want to see be brought into the world that they can't let go of, who may, like you said, may not have thought they were going to be entrepreneurs. And then there's a whole other set. And some, there's plenty of overlap between the two where they just they just can't think of themselves doing anything else except building and running a business. And I'm definitely more in that second set. Um, and I lo- But I do love the process of thinking of an idea and then seeing it brought into the world. We learned a ton in those early days. I'd say, you know, one of the biggest lessons learned that I think is, is important for everyone to listen to, anyone running a brand, anyone out there, 
we, we started running marketing and of course it wasn't working because it never does. No one ever starts running marketing and it just works. It's so rare. We were literally, we were getting paid $50 for a lead and it was costing us a thousand dollars to generate it. And we thought we were the, the biggest idiots on the planet for like, we thought we were super smart, savvy people who could learn anything. And, and then we're getting our ass kicked by Google. And, and, you know, I think the thing we learned, I, I chatted with a couple entrepreneurs and it all kind of came into one theme, which was like, do less. You know, we had like 500 keywords and all these fancy categories and groups. And, and, and these entrepreneurs were like, can you make one keyword work? Because you can't make 500 work until you make one work. And I think that was like a really important lesson. And then I actually talked to this guy, Brock Pierce, who's, he does a lot of crypto stuff now. And he's, he's, he's a very successful serial entrepreneur. And he, he kind of said, Jesse, you got to, you have to go deep on one channel for a meaningful period of time. And so the rule of thumb that I, you know, that I kind of share with folks now is for every single channel you're going to, you're trying to prove in your business, it takes 90 to 120 days of at least 50% of the founder's energy, in addition to potentially some contractors or other people running, running that marketing. And, and the analogy I always love to give someone is like, say that, you know, say Mike, that I wanted to learn, I wanted to become really good at tennis, really good at basketball, and then really good at uh, soccer. And I, I have three years to do that or two, you know, three years to do that. Would you tell me, you know, to, to try to learn all three at the same time constantly? Or would you say, well, pick one sport, get really good at that sport, Jesse, then pick the other sport, get really good at that sport. And it's the second one, right? It's, it's a serious thing, not a parallel thing. And so that was probably the early, early lesson that has, has not left us around success in marketing. When do you think it makes sense then? I, I love a kind of example of, hey, we're trying to, we're trying to uh, get good at 500, um, but it's a, it's like, hey, let's actually take a step back and try to get good at one. When something is working on a channel for entrepreneurs that are doing performance marketing, at what point do you kind of max out that channel and should look towards other channel? Like what like in in the kind of tennis basketball analogy, when do you know that you're kind of more more say like a 3.0 or like a, a 3.5 at tennis that you like then like you know can shift towards like basketball or or what have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a couple ways I think about it, and there's never it's always art and science, right? But but there's a couple ways I think about it. I think one way is sort of from a bottom up perspective. So I, I'll tell an entrepreneur, can you step away from Facebook? Let's say that's the channel you've chosen, and can whoever's running it because you're not involved anymore, your fifty percent is now ten percent or twenty percent. Can they hit the goals that you will expect them to hit? And is it does it have that level of predictability, right? And to, I'm, a, I'm a big tennis player. Like the tennis analogy is. If I'm going and I'm, I'm getting all my first serves in, you know, or, or I have a very high, you know, serve percentage rate, you know what? I, like, I've gotten pretty good at tennis. I've got, I'm pretty good at at least hitting the serve, right? And so I can probably focus on other parts of my game. And so from a bottom-up perspective, it's does the channel do what you expect it to? Can you hit your plan or your projections without a lot of your involvement? And that's something you can experiment with as an entrepreneur. And I think that's that's one way to think about it. I think the, the top-down method is really interesting, though, which is like, Oftentimes people are freaked out because they say Facebook is too much of their mix. But the reality of it is, you know, most of the time we, we like at Ambush, especially we would say like find more ways to fish in Facebook. And that's where stuff like, you know, white, white labeling or content or other kinds of ways of, of fishing inside of the same pond, it's still the biggest pond. It can bring some diversity to what you're doing. So there is a question of like, when you do spend incremental dollars, are you getting, are you, are you not getting the incremental return? That might be the time to look at another channel. But really, I really spend more attention on the first one, which is can it run operationally without your involvement and still be able to deliver the goals that it's supposed to deliver by itself? Even backing up even further about, you know, before even picking a channel, 
When does it make sense to even run ads in the first place? At what point does it make sense to for to actually like turn on that wheel? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think it depends. The answer is it very much depends. It specifically depends on how you're capitalized and, and how patient you are, right? If you have a lot of money and you're in a really big rush, if that's one extreme of the spectrum or the two by two, right? Then like you should turn on paid ads from the first day. You shouldn't even run, run a business. Like you might as well validate whether or not it works. When we, you know, we launched a, a supplement brand and we actually ran paid media to figure out the name of it. And that's a very common tactic that venture studios do. It's called a painted door test where they'll, they'll essentially pretend as if there's a brand there that's not really there just to see how people respond to it. I think that's kind of one extreme. I think all the way on the other extreme is like, you know, if you have a day job and it's a side hustle and you don't actually have any money to spend on it, I would find, you know, I'd do stuff like affiliate or even organic. I'd get in the Reddit, the Reddit boards, you know, and then there's a big mix of those two things. I think where to be careful though is to think that you're going to try to do all, you know, three of those things at one time and be successful at them. And so I think paid media is really a function of maybe the third vector is like capitalization, patience. The third vector is like product economics, right? And if you have something where you're, you can pay $25 to $75 for a customer, that's probably a pretty good candidate for paid. If you can't pay more than, you know, if you have to pay less than 25, paid is going to be real, real tough. It's going to be real tough to break through, right? Because you're competing with a lot of people who are all bidding on the CPMs the same way you are. And so like the math equation we always talk about, Mike, is like, if I have to pay $20 for a CPM, how much yield do I get out of that CPM? And yield is basically click through and conversion. Well, if, if my if my CAC has to be lower than 25, man, I got to get a lot of clicks and a lot of conversions to make the math on that work. It's not impossible. People do it all the time. But, but whereas if you, know, if you can pay $50 for a customer, the amount of clicks and conversions you need to get per $20 CPM is, is way lower. I appreciate that. I mean, obviously, it depends what type of business you, uh, you're you at and everything. I also, I remember one investor, a lot of investors talk about how on the show about, you know, organic, what's your what's your kind of community or or organic uh, sales, how um, are maybe more interested um, in that in determining if a product, you know, could be successful. And then I've also had investors that say, actually, I'm more interested about, you know, how efficient you are on the ad side, because if you can actually, then you can actually build up to scale and make a lot more sense for VC money or or angel money or you know any type of money that actually could could generate return for you, which I think is quite quite interesting. What parts about performance marketing in terms of how like how to even approach thinking about it? Do you might think is still maybe um, underappreciated or or overlooked? Yeah, that could be a whole podcast episode by itself. You know, I I think there's a few pieces to it that that come up for me very very regularly. I think one is. You know, goal setting is very arbitrary, pretty fundamentally. And so oftentimes people will go, well, I got to target that three to one LTV to CAC. And it's like, well, why? Well, what if you targeted six to one? You know, and, and then one goes, well, no, three to one, that's the formula. That's the kind of the V. And it, it goes, well, the reality of it is if you tell your team three to one, they'll accomplish three to one. And, and they'll do certain activities that are probably the easiest path to get to three to one. And that tends to be paid media. And you've seen a lot of businesses blow themselves up over time. If you tell your team six to one, they really can't do the same stuff. They, they have to do a different set of things. They probably have to do more organic. They have to, you have to come up with a whole series of a different set of initiatives to accomplish a different kind of goal. And I oftentimes encourage people, don't, don't set goal. You know, if you're going to set goals top down like that, make them really, really unique and reach goals because because it'll force you to do things you otherwise wouldn't, which will make you build a higher quality business, right? So that's kind of one, one piece of it. The, the flip side of that, which I, which I also encourage, is like focus a lot on the inputs. Like you hear a lot of people talk about CPA. You hear very few people talk about click-through rate and conversion rate. 
And, and the reality of it is if you get really good at, at improving click-through rate, like, you know, there's these whole businesses out there called click arbitrage businesses where they basically get someone in you know, these, like read the 10 celebrities with a botched boob job or something like that. Right. And they're really good at getting you to click. And then you, they show you a bunch of ads when you land on there. I mean, the way those businesses work is they will get people to the site for like three to five cents, and then they will sell them 10 cents worth of like 10 cents worth of ads will get served. And that's how they make a margin. So they just get really good at click-through rate. And, and I think there's inputs like that and input metrics that performance marketers don't spend enough time thinking about and understanding both the metric itself as well as how to tweak it. The third thing I'd say, and, and, and last is like, don't set destination goals, set uh, like set process goals. So for example, I will never set a CPA goal of, hey, the CPA goal is $40. I'll never set a goal like that. I'll always say, I would like to improve CPA by 3% every month. I want it to go, I want volume to go up by 3% and CPA to go down by 3%. And because what happens is the difference in the way people, we behave, if we know next month we still want to improve it, next month we still want to improve it is you create a much more robust capability than if you're just trying to hit a one-time, a one-time target. That's really useful, especially the percentages wise and and thinking about more so like that instead of just like a strict number that's maybe maybe actually comes from nowhere. Yeah, per- percentages over nominal is a really powerful one, which is like your team wants to know what you want to do and you never say, because it really, I mean, think about every business. There's never like, you could always lower your CPA. You could always grow your volume. And of course, at some point, your CPA might be low enough that you go, you know what, let's put extra energy on the inputs that are going to grow volume. But there's really never a static orientation towards goals. You're always trying to improve those metrics and building a business with that in mind helps helps the teams actually build more, get ahead more. You, you know, you just think over longer horizons. I know that your background's in obviously performance marketing. How do you also, maybe for for brands that you're affiliated with, know or brands that you've built, how do you also approach maybe non-performance marketing and when you actually, and growth, maybe when you actually can't measure if it's actually due to, you know, your, your marketing efforts? Yeah. I mean, admittedly, it's, it's not an area I've known. We've launched some of our own brands and probably that's not, hasn't been the strong suit, <laughs> right? I think, I think one thing we, we did do early on and, and I realized was kind of a fun, fun example that I think will resonate with you and, and the audience. I think we were launching, you know, the supplement brand and, we were like, okay, we got to write ad copy and media. And I, I sort of said, well, before we do any of that, let's go talk to some people about it. And, you know, my career has been mostly B2B in terms of commercially, like selling things to other business. And the nice thing about B2B sales is your feedback loop is amazing. You talk to another person, they either say, that sounds really cool, I'll buy it. Or they say, no, thanks, I'm busy. And I got, and, and so you can really quickly iterate. And that's always in my career, how I, from like a sales perspective, I would iterate and I said, before we try to write any marketing copy or even try to think about, our, you know, let's go get on 50 Zoom calls with different customers and actually try to pitch them. Not, not just talk about the business. Say, I am selling you this supplement. Here's why I think it's great. Here's your issue. Tell me about yourself. And it really let us refine the way we spoke about it, the way the messaging came across, because we could see the other person on the other side going, yeah, I don't think I'm going to sign up for a $50 a month subscription. Or, oh, my problem's not that big. Or, oh, you know, and, and then there's a different story or different narrative you would tell. And, and all of a sudden people start buying it. Okay, here's my credit card. I'm ready to buy it. And so kind of using this almost like B2B approach in the beginning, it's, it's a classic sort of do the things that don't scale because there was no way to scale that ever. But it, we, the way we scaled it was we wrote copy and made our ads and our email and our landing pages basically reflect the things we had learned by selling it one-to-one with individuals. 
No, that's that's really useful just as well as just be able to kind of create that feedback loop. And we've heard on the show entrepreneurs learning from their customers how they actually refer to their products and actually then adjusting their sales copy, even their packaging if it's CPG, just to actually better reflect the actual problems they're actually solving. The customers are almost doing them a favor, which is amazing. What were some of your, I guess, biggest lessons during your time at Ampush before you, I guess, created Gateway X? What were some of like your biggest learnings from that period? There was so much, right? I mean, I could take it in six different directions. I think the themes, maybe I'll give you the themes and you can you can poke and prod, right? I, I learned a ton about performance marketing because we saw almost every marketing challenge you could imagine from getting drivers to Uber, to getting downloads for Zynga, to getting sub- subscribers for Blue Apron, Birchbox. I mean, we, we did and lived kind of everything you could imagine that's happened in performance marketing in the last decade, more or less. So that's one theme and category we could go into. I'm pretty passionate about organization and culture building. And so there was a ton of lessons and learnings around, you know, building high performance culture, but also high performance culture that has, that's a positive culture and that has a lot of, you know, kindness at its heart and and helping people learn and grow versus just kind of beating people up. And I think I spent a lot of time and and made lots of mistakes in in doing that, but learning, learned a ton. Uh, So that's another area we could talk about. And I think a third area is like, there was a ton of different learnings around business models, which business models worked, which ones didn't work, why they worked, why they didn't work. There was a ton of, in our own business model around selling value versus cost. You know, how do you, how do you build a services business? How do you scale that business? How, like we had a bunch of tech and software at one point, and then we sort of, we, we changed it and evolved it. So, so there's like a lot of different pieces that <laughs> I could talk about the agency and, and performance marketing world, the, you know, these different brands and customer acquisition or, or even just building companies. How did you approach high-performing culture? Overall, what's the kind of general philosophy when it comes to culture? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, let, let me start with saying, you know, like I, I think one of the things I did really well early on, you know, I'd worked at, at, at kind of these fancy companies and I absorbed the way that they recruited and trained talent. And so from the get-go, we, you know, we still have this stat at Ampush and we, you know, we've always shared it, which is 80% of our, our employees have never done any kind of performance marketing prior to joining Ampush. So we were big on tra- hiring athletes, training them from the ground up on how to make this work, and also unlocking their own kind of fresh eyes and creativity as a part of our strategy that worked really, really effectively. So that was something I did really well. I think something I did really poorly in the beginning uh, was, I, you know, I would have thought I was self-aware, but as I've, as I've gotten more self-aware... I really wasn't. Um, and oftentimes I was approaching conversations and situations from a state of fear or a state of threat, which is very normal for entrepreneurs. Is like, oh man, I, I think I'm trying to help this person or I think I'm trying to fix this business problem. But what I'm really, as I'm scared, I'm freaked out about something that's going wrong. And I and that's sort of rubbing everybody the wrong way, <laughs> right? And and so that like that took me many, many years to like, because I'd be like, wait, I, I don't know. Like, and I would never, I'm not a yell, I'm not someone who yells or, but I, but I like ask, you know, ask a lot of questions and, and people go, man, this is really not, not a great culture. It's not a place I want to work. And I think I kind of lived through a lot of that. And it took me quite a bit of time to really understand and take responsibility for it. So those, I think early on, those are a couple things, you know, as it evolved and, and, I, and I kind of built more of my own learning and understanding, I think the biggest thing was sort of, you know, there, there's these five types of motivators we spend a lot of time talking about. There's there's fear, there's extrinsic, which is like money titles. There's intrinsic, which is beating your own score. There's play genius. And then there's like like empathy or love, like really trying to help another human. And, and first of all, I didn't even know these five when I first started any of this. And the key, the key thing that I started to develop as a leader was being aware when I was coming from which one and trying my best to have us play more in the, the play genius or trying to help each other 
and less in the fear and extrinsic and actually creating kind of like systems and processes and even even the way I showed up. And so it would be everything from like, you know, starting a meeting by spending a minute of everyone just taking some deep breaths and kind of getting present so that we're able to kind of be our most creative and be our most open and learning, you know, all the way to like, when when numbers don't look good, we don't, you know, we don't start with either telling a story about them or getting mad or anything. We just try to make sure we understand very clearly without emotion where we stand and taking like a really clear perspective on that. And so it showed up in a bunch of different cultural practices, but I think that it all is rooted in the sort of let's be really aware of our context kind of from where we're coming and let's try to choose to be in this more open learning kind of curious state versus a state of threat, which is the more common state is like, Oh my God, I'm I'm constantly in a state of threat. I'm reactive. And we try to kind of reduce the reactivity in the organization. What are maybe some pieces of advice for, for entrepreneurs that, because probably, especially if you're a first time entrepreneur, you might be in that kind of state of being fear and, and, you know, kind of reacting. What are maybe some, you know, things that you did that really was actually helpful in order to get you in, into a better state? The first thing is developing awareness around it, right? And I think like, I remember I, I ended up, you know, working with this coach starting in 2018 and is still my coach. And crazy enough, I met him in 2012 or 2013. And I thought, gosh, that's, I was bootstrapped, right? I was like, gosh, that's so expensive. Like, nah, I don't need that. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm good at what I'm doing. And so the first thing I tell everyone is like, Step one, get a coach as early as you can possibly afford it. Like think of it as, as the most critical hire you'll make in your first 10 or 20 hires, because I think it is that impactful. Um, you know, number two is like, there's a book I, I love and a website, like uh, the book is 15 commitments of conscious leaders and the, the website's conscious.is. And it's, it's a whole, what I love about it is like, it takes a lot of this stuff around meditation and sort of like, you know, very philosophical sort of vague stuff. And it actually brings it into the business context and it gives you real exercises to run with your team. Um, like an example, one of those exercises is called the like, write the recipe exercise. So, you know, you, you, your whole team and you're complaining, like, you know, you're not getting the results you want. So it's like, a, let's say, for example, your CPA is too high. Let's take a total business issue. And you actually say, okay, well, pretend you wanted to, to teach a class on how to get your CPA to be higher than you want it to be. It's you want it to be 40 and it's 50. Write the recipe for someone else for how you might accomplish that. Teach them, teach them the class on how to do the thing. And what happens is it basically forces everyone to take a lot of responsibility on how they're contributing to whatever the thing is that nobody wants and you want to improve it. And it creates this tons of like responsibility and self-awareness. But they have a bunch of exercises that I would leverage as an, as an early entrepreneur. You know, third one is like there's this exercise that my coach would have me do called the hot seat. And it's sort of like a real time 360 um, so you get your team around you, maybe it's your investors and you're also your team, whoever's around you. And for 30 minutes, you sit there and there's actually like a bunch of these, they're on that website too. There's a bunch of, uh, they're called feedback stems. You know, you'd be more powerful to me if one thing I see you not doing enough of is, is blank. They're actually specific sentences because feedback is hard because people don't know what to say. And then it's just like too awkward and there's too much friction and they just, nobody ever gives feedback. So it makes it really easy. And you have to sit on the seat for 30 minutes while your whole team basically reads this list and says, you know, Jesse, one area where I felt frustrated is when you do blah, 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 you know, or hey, Jesse, here's an area where I see you're not showing up enough for the team is blah, blah, blah. And in 30 minutes, you not only do you build a lot of intimacy with your team through that process, but holy crap, you get tons of feedback for yourself, which you can use to improve and be a better, better leader and a better CEO. And ultimately, Entrepreneurship more than more than anything, I believe, is about leadership. And so, yeah, I think those are just three examples. But I mean, there's a ton of stuff like that. No, that's great. That's great. And that's 
really helpful. And I also really appreciate you sharing that website, conscious.is. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. That's, that, that's great. What is Gateway X and what led you to creating it? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, if you, every six months, if you ask me, the answer is <laughs> different. <laughs> it changes. changes uh, that's part, part of what makes it special. What it is, you know, I, I think the, I'll talk about a couple of pieces of it. You know, I had done a lot of coaching and, and what I realized got me excited was like really my purpose, my why is I love helping other people learn through the power of entrepreneurship. I think entrepreneurship is a really noble thing. It creates jobs and businesses. I think it's the, one of the ultimate, it's like running a marathon. It's this ultimate personal challenge that forces you to grow and, and develop yourself in ways and certainly did for me. And I think for others I've talked to, and, and that's kind of like something I'd like want to spend the rest of my life doing is helping people learn and grow through that, through that plot, like through entrepreneurship. And, and in, in particular, what I love doing is like, I love the process of coming up with an idea and then seeing it being brought into this world and all the pieces that come, like you just think of something one day and then next thing you know, it's, it's a thing, right? I, I just love that sort of that process. I love coaching and teaching people. You know, I, I love uh, storytelling and persuading and sort of like bringing people along leadership and persuasion and sales. And I, I was like, what, what is a platform that would let me do that? How could I actually do that every day? If those are the things that I love. And I thought about, you know, different versions of it. I could be, you know, should I be a VC? And I just kind of got pretty enthusiastic about this venture studio model. And I think, you know, for me, it started as a, well, let me launch a bunch of different things and see what happens. And, and now like similar to the, the lesson of launching a channel, like I'm learning, man, it's hard to do multiple things at once. So I'm, I'm trying to now think about how to, you know, I'm the chairman for some businesses while I'm the CEO for only one business at a time and sort of what that looks like. And so I'm learning as I go. But the idea, I think the dream for me is in five or 10 years, someone goes, hey, if you if you want to go be a Fortune 500 CEO, go work at McKinsey. If you want to be a hedge fund genius, go work at Goldman Sachs. If you want to be an entrepreneur, go work at, at Gateway X. And we can hire right out of school or right really young and train and coach people on how to become entrepreneurs while learning to be, you know, great people along the way. Um, but we may have, I don't know, five to 10 different businesses. We've scaled them. They're, they're not capital constrained. Like they can grow profitably and scalably. Um, and it's sort of like a bunch of leaders and a bunch of learning and, and things going on. That's kind of the dream in my mind. It's amazing. That's amazing. I know that you, you mentioned that you launched, you know, a few businesses under Gateway X and obviously it's a venture studio, which you would, you, that's what venture studios do. What's your process for actually launching kind of new businesses under, under Gateway X? Yeah. You know, I, I don't think we have a tight process just yet. I mean, we, we were constantly coming up with ideas, researching spaces. We've paused most of it for the moment just because we got our hands full with what we've got going on. But in general, I think, I think the most important part of our process is is the question of why us so it turns out like for me at least and i think for a lot of people like you can look at a lot of trends and you can look at market sizes and you can come up with lots of unmet business opportunities and needs that part is actually not that hard the important part is to go well why am i why why should i be the one starting this business or why should it like and another way to ask the question is what's my unfair advantage here and so that's kind of the most important question we answer which is what makes me uniquely suited to be able to get this out and get this out, you know, get this going. And so that's the question where most of the business ideas fail that we come up with, which is we, we need to explain to ourselves why we think we can uniquely be successful in this business. So it's not just seeing the opportunity and understanding the opportunity, but also what actually gives you the competitive advantage that actually makes sense to actually launch it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have scores of ideas that have big markets that feel like customers have unmet needs that we think the trends are in its favor, 
And, it, you know, if you, again, if you do the mental process, yeah, we'll think top down what's changing in the world, either what's changing in the world in big ways or what are or what's some big markets. And then we try to find places where those two things intersect with each other. And, you know, we could, we could you and I could come up with a business idea on this call. We go, you know, the future of work is changing a lot. In 2015's organization, let's just say as an example, was 90% full-time in-person, 10% remote and contractor. I'm making those numbers up. 2025's organization is going to be probably 50%, at best 50% full-time in-person, 25% remote, 25%, you know, uh, part-time or contract. And I like that contract area as an example where I'm like, oh, there's so many, so many things that happen when a big chunk of your labor force is contract and remote. You know, what's, what's the insurance product for those people? How do you give those people feedback? Like, and so literally from there, there's like 10 different business ideas. <laughs> like I've, we've done this exercise and come up with them. Uh, how do you, what's the right way to do payroll for those people? What's the right way to do health and benefits? And you could pick any one of them and make a business out, out of it. And then, but then the question goes, well, why, why is Jesse going to be really good? And why is, you know, Adam, and now we have a team, obviously, what, why, why would these people be the one right people to start this business? And that's where most of the ideas kind of fall, fall away. <laughs> I appreciate you mentioning that. I had on the team at Alicorp, Wendy and Susanna, they also just are a venture studio or venture incubation company. I mean, just going through kind of like that funnel of, well, just kind of like observations in the world and how that kind of comes down all the way through the pipe in terms of what could potentially be like a real business and, and, and like the overall funnel through that. I think it's just really, really quite interesting. On the investing side, I mean, what's your kind of approach when it comes to your diligence and evaluating opportunities? Because I know that you also have an investment arm with uh, Gateway X. Yeah, I mean, most of that stuff is personal investing that I just kind of put under one umbrella just because it's sort of me. It's all one and the same. But, you know, it's, it's changed a lot. Like we, when we had our first liquidity event from Ampush, I was kind of like, oh, like, you know, it was a good idea. And I like the entrepreneur. I was like, I'm in, you know, and, and it was small. They're all small checks, right? Relative like 25 to 100K. And, you know, I invested in Burrow, uh, which is like D2C couches. I invested in Candid, which was the teeth aligners. Madison Reed, one of my favorite ones, which is like D2C hair coloring uh, for women, like a subscription. And so that, that led to some pretty good stuff. And I, I think as it evolved over time, I mean, one thing is I have far less time than I did as CEO of Ampush. And so it's basically led to, I, I mean, I tell everyone I don't really invest. My bar has gone up dramatically. You know, the other thing is that as I started looking at the public markets, especially now, I, I, I believe there's a lot of like 10x type opportunities in the public markets. You know, like I think Shopify is a 10x from here. I think Twilio, like there's all these, you know, just whatever, one man's opinion. And so a lot of what I do now when I do angel and private stuff is not only do I have to love the entrepreneur and the idea, but I also have to think about how it's going to 100x. Because if you believe you can get 10x, you know, literally like the question I'll say is like, do I think this is a better risk and reward than buying Shopify stock right now? Or Shopify is one example, right? There's even Wayfair. I mean, Wayfair is... Uh, 4 billion, like three, 4 billion. It's a $12 billion business. It's trading like a company that's going out of business. And I don't think it's, I think it's going to grow like pretty meaningfully over the next 10 years. So there's stuff like that where I just, I'm comparing them to actually public businesses and seeing if I think there's a better risk reward. So it usually has to be something I believe can hundred X. Does that then take you out from investing in consumer brands? Uh, by and large. Yeah. Unless I can get, unless there's a really good valuation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, like I think sometimes I'll uh, I'll come on as both an advisor and an investor, right? And then like somehow between that math, I'll get down to a number that's like three to five million or something, and I believe it can be a three hundred or five hundred million dollar business. 
I kind of think of you as the king of bootstrap businesses because you have these incredible threads all about these amazing stories of people bootstrapping uh, businesses. Of course, you bootstrapped them and push and, and kind of everything that you do is bootstrap. When do you think it makes sense for a founder to bootstrap over going out and raising a, a venture capital round or a even from angels or, or what have you? And also, like, why did you do that path for yourself? I know you like wanted to learn, talk a little bit, but like, why was kind of venture capital to you never really an, an option in some ways? I think I think the I think there's there's like multiple filter questions to decide whether you raise or not. I think the first question and the most important question, by and large, I think is what do you want? And by the way, funny enough, it's the question I think entrepreneurs ask themselves the least, right? Or or the answer to the question is what do you mean? What do I want? I just want to be successful, Jesse. I, what do you mean? What do I want? And I actually think early on in starting a company, because of all the like sort of stuff around it, it's like I don't want to fail. I want to be successful. That's it. That's and anything I can do to be successful is yes, and anything I fail is no. And I oftentimes ask the question, well, what? Let's assume you're going to be successful in both instances. Then what do you want? And and I think that's a question like very few people ask them because they don't even, they don't want to like jinx themselves of dreaming of actually it actually working, right? And and so the first question is that it's like in five or ten years, do you want to build a huge company with a bunch of smart people who know how to build the business around you? chase this big thing, go aggressively. And for you, likely where you end up is, is like a successful CEO with a board and you're working for people effectively. You have an employment agreement with the organization and then like that sort of, you know, you, you, there's a partnership there and, and that means you're not fully in control of it. And, and that's like, that's one life to live, but you get to chase this big opportunity and fund it and, and go aggressively. There's another opportunity, you know, the other version, which is, I'm not sure if I care how big the size is. As long as it's a certain size that I'm happy with, I want to run the show. I want it to be my show. And I think, you know, there's obviously tons of shades of gray, but in general, those two paths, I think asking yourself, which one do you want is really, really important and, and being honest with yourself. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs I've seen actually prefer the second path, but they kind of, they get lulled into the first path. And then they're, they're five years into the future, seven years into the future. And they're going, gosh, I really just wish I could run my business every day. And, and I didn't, you know, I could do my thing. I didn't have to worry about anyone telling me what to do. Instead, I'm doing all these things. I have to go raise another round and blah, blah, blah. Right. So I think that's the first question. I think the second question is then like, there's like a finance question, which is like, what do you need to capitalize? What is, what will be successful for this business? There are a ton of businesses that will just be better with more, with money attached to them. You know, some certain SaaS businesses, depending on if you're an engineer or not, Obviously, anything that's require heavy R&D, anything that requires capital investment, either via marketing or real estate, there's a bunch of, you know, you couldn't bootstrap Opendoor, you couldn't bootstrap Uber. I mean, you could have, but they just would have never gotten to where they would like to be. Um, whereas I think there's like certain, a lot of software and services businesses where if you're willing to go a little bit slower, that's back to patients, you can do them with very minimal capital to kind of, to kind of get in, in scale it, right? Um, so those, that's, there's like the personal question, there's the finance question. Um, the only other thing I would say on this, on this category for now is like, I very much view bootstrapping as a mindset. Um, so even if you take money, I think the idea is, do you want your revenue and your expenses to be tied together very closely and your revenue to kind of offset your expenses, even if you raise money or even if you burn some money, what sort of like leads to your urgency? And I think part of it, the bootstrap mindset is no, I got to get revenue in the door and I got to pay my bills. And that keeps a certain discipline in the organization, regardless of what's on my balance sheet. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? You know, professionally, I love, I love entrepreneur bios. Like, you know, I think Made in America, Sam Walton's autobiography is amazing. Like, it's just fun. So is, so is uh, um, Richard Branson's Losing My Virginity, I think it's called. Those are both just like, they're just awesome hustler stories of the shows you those guys and 
what they were willing to do. And personally, I'm trying to think of a good good personal. I mean, I'd, I'd probably say the 15 commitments of conscious leaders. It's it's made me a better father, better better husband. There's other books I've read on that category, like the there's that one about French parenting, bringing up baby, which I thought was pretty good. There's another one called Parenting Without Borders, which I thought was pretty good. So that's my stage of life right now. <laughs> Thanks for sharing these. We're really excited to add these to the book list. That's great. My final question to you is maybe what's one piece of advice for anyone that's looking to start a business? Be honest with yourself. You know, starting a business is super scary. And so I think you, while you're doing this really courageous thing, oftentimes it's easy day to day to kind of like just tell yourself little small white lies. And I think if you if you have a really high bar and you're really you're excited and want to be successful, you can be that while also kind of being honest with yourself when something's not working or it's not where it wants to be. And it'll lead you to actually be more successful. Love that. Love that. Jesse, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Mike. This is awesome. I'm so glad we made it happen. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Jesse on the show. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at JSPUJI. That's J-S-P-U-J-J-I. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>